I decided to kind of do a three-week series uh, in, um, in Isaiah, um, prophesying the coming Messiah. And, uh, and so one of the things that I want you to reflect upon today as we're talking about this or what, what, what's important, um, first of all, one of the things that's uh, true about pagan religions in general, religions that are godless, is they tend to see history as cyclical. Things just keep occurring in a cycle and nothing, nothing new happens. So um, the, the seasons are actually, in a lot of those uh, religions, were marked the uh, birth or death of gods or the activities of people being carried off or, or things like, t- you know, one god getting dominance over another. Whereas um, history, in, um, according to God, is linear. Things have a beginning in him and, then, and there's a progression and so uh, one, of the things, one, of the, one of the things is we're not, uh, we're not part of a church that has, has a church calendar. We're not part of a tradition that follows strictly to a church calendar. So, but at the same time, the things that we're remembering, it's not as if we, as we come back into this, this time when we recognize that Christ came to earth, it's not like it's a cycle where the same thing's occurring and then we're going back to some kind of history. What we're doing is we're seeing that God is acting in history to bring about some great event in future history, and it's appropriate as well to look back at the things that God has done to see what he's done and to see that he can be relied upon and that we're able to trust him. In the future, based on what he has promised, what he has delivered, what he has given us by his spirit, and then the future hope of what he's going to deliver. And so as we get into Isaiah, we're going to see that, that unfolding, that continual unfolding at the time of Isaiah that, has, um, that had an impact at that period of time and a message to that, that king, but then continuing relevance to us. So that we look back at that, we're not looking at history of some far off, you know, near ancient, near Eastern uh, culture, but those are our people that the prophet's talking to. And those are, that's, that's our promise. And so I want us to hear those things because when we're, when we're, when we're looking at, at the, um, the things that are happening, we need to kind of open up our picture as to what's going on, our view. Because in one sense, again, um, if you haven't had a chance to read um, Leonard's uh, post on, Hope of, at, on the Hope of Christ page that he shared, one of the things that he and I were both wrestling with is this issue of how our, our joy around this time is so much tied up into the things that we all remember growing up to. I was even reflecting upon that today. This was always my favorite time of the year because I got so many presents. And I'm sure there are many kids that are, are like that as well, that like it's, it's, you know, I used to think, why is Easter more important? They always used to say in the church, like Easter's more significant than, than Christmas. And I'm like thinking, well, it sure doesn't feel that way. Like Easter's nice, but like a basket with candy was pretty cool. But there was nothing that could compare to this kind of season in terms of even today, you get time off, you get bonuses, you get all these temporal blessings around it. They've got great movies, they've got great music and all that other stuff. And what I realized is that there's, there's this thing to where if 
you have children, you're living vicariously back on the things that you remember on all the material blessings. But in reality, what we're looking forward to is something much bigger than the joy that, some, that attends some of these things. No matter how awesome Elf is as a movie or all those other things that are funny and exciting about that, everything pales in comparison to... Um, what we're receiving in Christ or what he's coming to do because as we, as we look beyond all that stuff that's passing away and see that we are in dire need of a savior from our sins, then the beauty and the joy of what Christ represents comes through. And, and it, it, it just hit me over the head to think about churches that aren't actually even celebrating are actually not even worshiping on Christmas because people will be so involved in the, in the trappings of things that are going away that they say, you know what, well, we're going to give that time for people to do that. Doesn't that say something about where their priorities are, especially when you look at it and you say, well, what if, what if me getting together with my family at that period of time is not a completely joyous event because of the things I'm missing or the people that, I, um, that, that, that I'm missing in my household or the grief that I remember on that? If that's all that Christmas is, if that's all that that, that Resurrection Sunday is, then how sad is that? And so we, I, want you, I want us to, to blow up in our imagination and our, in, our, in our faith to see the sign of what Christ has done. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and I'll continue on that after, as we keep going. 1 through 9, I'm sorry. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, son of Uzzah, king of, of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, in, in Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was, was told, Syria is in league with, with, uh, with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Israel, go out to, to meet Ahaz, I'm sorry, said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and um, Sherezhebub, your son, at the end of the, the, um, the conduit of the upper pool on the highways of the, of the washer, washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of the two smoldering, uh, these two smoldering stumps of, hold on, I need to switch my glasses. I can't see very well. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel, the king, in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord your God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. And and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, 
And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Please be seated. Okay, so now you're thinking, wow, this, is, this sounds really like um, Christmassy. This sounds really like the season that we're talking about here. But I want to set the context for where, where Isaiah is going to uh, give this promise on this, um, this prophecy that's going to be fulfilled 730 plus years after Isaiah uh, makes it, around 734 B.C., and what we see is, is the, um, a, the, the king of Judah, Ahaz, is, um, is, is uh, about 20 years old, and he's the king, he, he has the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, and Syria, the northern tribes, have gotten in league, uh, uh, sorry, Samaria, the northern tribes, also known as Ephraim sometimes, is in league with Syria. And the reason they're in league with Syria is because this threat of this great growing power called Assyria that's to their northeast, and they're threatened by it, and so they're all teamed up together, and then they've decided, you know what, we're going to get rid of Judah, and we're going to go up against Judah, and we're going to conquer it, and we're going to put a king over it. And so now, Ahaz and everybody is shaking in their boots over this. They're thinking, this is crazy. We've got all of this, um, all of this military and might and power arrayed against us. What are we going to do? And so he has his counselors together, and he wants to know what to do. Now, where should the king of Judah go for help? Uh, what, what should be the natural course? It, in one sense, um, you know, the... the the political council should be fairly simple if you're the king of Judah. You say, where are we going to go to help for um, if people are coming up against us, great military powers? Like, what are, what are my options here? Let me see. Um, God? Uh, I'll, okay, that's an option. Good, good. Op- okay, let's, let's, let's put that as an option. And then we've got all these other things. Who else should we team up with? You see what I'm saying? Like, and that's really what Isaiah comes to do is to remind Ahaz, hey, what are you doing? I want to remind you whose king you are. You are king established. You are of the house of David. You have been established by Yahweh. This is, this is God's kingdom here. And what are you thinking about? Where are you going with, with, with your faith here? Who are you putting your trust in? And because what it is, is that Judah is actually thinking about, and I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but you can read the scriptures for yourself. But Ahaz is, decide, is already thinking about and will decide to basically team up with Assyria to pay off Assyria, give them a bunch of money so that they can go and sack those guys and get them off his back. Now, from a, from if you just forget that God actually exists for a second and you look at it on the plane of like just pure pragmatic, what am I going to do here? Ahaz's plan makes a lot of sense, but Isaiah is going to him and saying, you're, you need to recognize that the people that you're afraid of, they're going to be gone in 65 years. 65 years from now, Ephraim will be no more. And what he's prophesying is the, the carrying away, the destruction of the northern tribes. If you read in your scriptures around 587, that's exactly what happens, is that they actually get wiped out, um, and, and those tribes end up losing their entire identity as the people of God. They become the Samaritans later on. They're called the Samaritans and not the, the specific tribes because Assyria does originally, eventually conquer them, and they're carried off. And what 
Isaiah is trying to remind Ahaz is this is everything that you see here, everything that you're afraid of, they're, they're going away. Why are you afraid of them? You've got the Lord on your side. You're, Dave, you're, you're the son of David, so to speak. You're a descendant of David. Remember uh, in whom David placed his trust. And he's saying, stand firm. Believe in God. Don't believe in other, th- uh, in other things. And so he's trying to give a challenge, not a challenge, but a command, God's command. Trust me for salvation. Don't trust the things around you. And this is, not, this is not a minor thing. This is a small nation. And so from all intents and purposes, I can imagine there are those around thinking, who's Isaiah? This is, this is crazy. Like, you, you got to be practical about these things. He's kind of a little bit of a religious extremist. Yes, of course, God made those promises, but we live in the real world, okay? We're not talking about faith here. That's the realm of faith. This is the realm of politics, so to speak. We got to be clear about these things. But, but Isaiah is trying to call Ahaz to faith, to, the God, to his God, to, to believe in what he's trying to say. And so this, this continues here. In, in Isaiah uh, 7, verses 10 to 17, he says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to, to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be, will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as you have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So now what happens here is that there's, there's, there's bad news and good news in this. In fact, this is one of those uh, things where Isaiah says, look, I'm telling you, Everything's going to be okay if you trust in God. In fact, ask for a sign, and God will give you a sign. Ask for something from God that you can trust in him. I, I'm, I as a prophet, am commanding you, ask for a sign so that I can establish you in your faith that you might trust God. This, this point, in fact, this is, this is almost like saying the gospel is going forward with Isaiah. Choose this day whom you will serve. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And what Ahaz does is he decides he's going to harden his heart. Now, how does he harden his heart? He actually quotes scripture back to Isaiah. Oh, well, because what he wants to do is he wants to basically get a, go into the place where he wants to go. He wants to go with our Assyria, and what he doesn't want to do is ask the Lord for a sign to kind of pu- push him off of that. So he says, well, you're not supposed to put God to the test, basically. Now, is that in the Scripture? Yes, it's in the Scripture, but it's a satanic use of Scripture. It's, a, it's, it's Scripture unseasonably used. It's, it's, it's the way Satan uh, uh, quotes Scripture to Jesus, say, hey, um, you know what? Why don't you jump off the temple, and then, you know, God promised you're not going to bash your head against a stone. 
you know, or do all these things. Why don't you turn, turn uh, bread in, or the, these stones into bread? God said he can do that. That's not, it's, it's the unwise. It's not the right season for the scripture. It's not the right application. There's so many ways in which scripture is good for the, the use in the wisdom of what it's intended. But then when it's in, the, in, in this particular uh, place, God has commanded Ahaz for a, to, to ask for a sign is go crazy, Ahaz, your wildest imagination. Ask for a sign, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you such a sign as you can't believe. And Ahaz refuses for seemingly pious reasons, but ultimately wicked reasons. He does not want to be established. He wants to trust in Assyria. And so this prophecy, so to speak, becomes something that doesn't belong to Ahaz anymore because Ahaz has rejected faith in God. He's chosen whom he's going to have faith in, and that's Assyria. And so this, this, this uh, prophecy is, much, is as much an oracle of doom upon the fact that unbelie- the unbelief that will come, as well as a sign for everybody later who will trust upon God's sign. And so you see this here in this interesting uh, prophecy of this... Um, uh, of the fact that he says here, he says, um, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And, and so what, what, what God says is that he says, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's, it's going to be, there's, there's this complicated sign here in terms of virgin conceiving, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, and the time of his coming shall be after a bunch of bad things happen, because you've decided to essentially forsake me. There's going to be ruin upon the land. He's going to time at a, come at a time of when there's poverty in the land, uh, ruin has come upon it. The eating of curds and honey um, signifies kind of like poverty in the land. That this 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 person who's coming, whose name shall be Emmanuel, shall come in such a time. And all of these things, because you chose to trust in Assyria, then the uh, that that it'll eventually lead to um, calamity for not only the 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 no- northern kingdom, which I've already prophesied, but also for the southern kingdom as well. Now, um, I just want to make sure you understand that when uh, some people who are reading this text, a few things that come out of here. First of all, um, again, Leonard and I were talking about this. I know you, you're like, well, why do you bring this up? It's just because he and I talk about these things a lot. Just They come up. And we were saying, well, I wonder what... Um, I wonder what the near-term fulfillment of that. Who was this virgin that was going to conceive? Because sometimes when prophecies come from the prophets, there's a near-term f- fulfillment of things that happen, and then a later um, fulfillment that's kind of has a redemptive uh, aspect, something that points forward to Christ. What I settled on, though, and Leonard might disagree with me, but that's okay. Um, but I settled on the idea that I don't think this had any fulfillment other than what we expect in the coming of Christ. Because in one sense, one person said this sign was no longer for Ahaz. His time for a sign was gone. He had basically given up on faith and what, what God, what Isaiah is prophesying is the coming Messiah and the virgin who shall conceive. And so this, this sign is for those who will trust. This sign is for a future 
um, a future uh, Messiah who will redeem Israel. Um, we, we don't have all the details of, of who that Messiah will be as it unfolds in Isaiah. That's, that's certainly the case. But um, that's, that's the first thing as to whether or not there was a near-term fulfillment. Was there a virgin that conceived somewhere? Because it was a virgin who was going to conceive. And that's the other um, thing that comes up. And I was thinking about how much detail do I go in into in here? Because sometimes there's all sorts of uh, historical uh, unbelieving kind of debates that come up, and I wonder how much I should bring up to you about it, because you're like thinking, wow, I never really even knew that people had these ridiculous arguments about things. Uh, Because the thing that comes up here is the term that he uses in the Hebrew is that an Alma shall conceive, or the Alma shall conceive. The word is kind of maiden or young young unmarried woman. It's a young unmarried woman. And then some people will say, yeah, but later on when there's a quoting of this passage, it says the virgin. And if they wanted to be more precise, they should have used the word the, the Hebrew word petula, and so it wasn't really a virgin, it was an alma. And the reality is, is as, as I was reading through this, the actual best way to communicate that this person who's going to conceive a child is an actual virgin is to use this Hebrew word. And if you need to talk about that more, if you ever run into somebody who wants to bring that up as some needless objection, I'm happy to go into more detail than that. But the point is, is that that is a good, the best translation for this, the virgin shall conceive. Now, I just want to point out to you too, is that it is remarkable for virgins to conceive. And most of you know that. Some of the kids are like, what's he talking about? It's like, don't worry, that conversation will come. But the point is, is that um, somebody was once remarking to C.S. Lewis is like, don't, don't, aren't you glad we, they were listening to some people singing um, Christmas carols about this. And um, this, this professor at uh, Oxford turned to C.S. Lewis and said, I'm glad we live in a time where we don't believe that kind of stuff anymore. And C.S. Lewis is like, well, you know, people back then knew that virgins don't conceive. I mean, like, it, it doesn't take a rocket science. You don't have to have a degree in medicine. Just, I mean, like, everybody knows that. It's, it's you know, doctors may be able to, you know, help women give birth, uh, but everybody knows how this works. And so it is a remarkable thing. It is an amazing thing that what uh, God has foretold is that um, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And it's a sign for belief. It's a sign for those who will trust in this Messiah that something so remarkable will happen and that, 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 that God's promise will be fulfilled by something that's impossible, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And he will, he will, he will basically, in one sense, reverse what happened in Genesis where he knows, he knows what is good and actually does it. Because in Genesis, that was the problem. They knew what was good and they did the evil. Whereas our, the person who's coming, our Messiah, knows the good and will do it. And so I was reflecting upon this in one sense. We have, we have a number of Davids in this passage, as it were. We have, the, we have um, David, who's the, uh, the king of Israel, and, and, and the the current occupant of the, or was the king of Israel, and the current occupant of the throne whom uh, Isaiah is prophesying to is 
his descendant, the son of David. And what we have in Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah sees, the, um, sees God on a throne in his calling for into his ministry. He sees uh, the glory of Yahweh on his throne, and the angels are calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, fu- the whole earth is full of his glory, and he's so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he, he's crushed by it, and he wants, he's calling curses upon himself because he's unrighteous. And then an angel flies and, and cleanses him with fire, fires from, from the uh, coals from the fire. And then he, and then he, as he's uh, as he's cleansed and is able to stand in the, the presence of Yahweh, God calls him to a ministry in which he's promised, you're going to proclaim the word of God and nobody's going to listen to you. And it's like, great, that's a great ministry. I'm going to be called as a prophet that nobody's going to listen to me. And then immediately in chapter 7, it's like, yeah, that's pretty much what happens. I'm going to prophesy, and the very son of David's not even going to listen to my prophecy, but now I'm proclaiming a, a, uh, a, a prophecy, one of the grandest prophecies ever, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And as we're picking up now, later on, again, history is linear, remember? It's not cyclical. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, it says... Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in, the way, in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, then, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, do you get to, um, from the passage, those who know what I'm talking about, that Mary was a virgin? Just clearly, she was engaged to Joseph, and again... Joseph understood where babies come from, okay? Joseph understood that, and he found, he found out that Mary was with child, and I'm sure they talked about it, but it was, it's, it's a little bit inconceivable, so to speak, that somebody says, no, I, I'm going to have a baby, but I haven't been with a man. And he, he, he did actually what would be a just and a kind thing to divorce her quietly. It could have gone worse for Mary given that culture, and here comes the word of God to the son of David. And how is the son of David going to react to this? You see, in this culture, um, you guys are all probably familiar with the idea of the double blessing or the double portion. But the, um, the, the double portion normally went to the firstborn, the first person who was, uh, who was born to 
uh, a father got the double portion. That meant he got twice as much as every other son in the household when the father finally gave out the inheritance. Now, just so you know, back in those days, people occasionally... Um, this is one of the things, just, just so you know, now it wasn't, it, it's not as rampant as it is today, but occasionally um, women were found with child before men were married, so to speak, where men were married with them because the couple sometimes, well, let's just not get into that too much. But the fact is, if a man, uh, uh, the man who married that woman because they decided to, to um, um, I'm just, they, they had the baby a little too early, so to speak, before the wedding, then the the fact is that, that 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 father had no choice but to give the double portion to that son, his oldest son. Now, that, that means that even no matter how, how that child turned out, that hit half or, or a good portion of his inheritance was going to that son. Now, for all intensive purposes, what Joseph ended up doing in faith was adopting the son of God by marrying Mary, because it wasn't his child by natural birth, by natural descent. But for, for all intents and purposes, as everybody else would see, Jesus is his firstborn, and he's going to get twice the inheritance from Joseph, the son of David. I mean, this is a poor man, but still, you, he knew where his descent came from. And so this is an amazing act of obedience, one where he's listening to God and he's believing upon the promise of God. And from a dream, you're think, like thinking, well, an angel came to him. Of course you're going to believe. Well, don't be so sure about that. Because a prophet came to Ahaz and he didn't believe. And so we have another, uh, we have another um, descendant of David here who's prophesied of the fact that this this baby in, in Mary's womb is a fulfillment of this very prophecy. It took 700 years to, to fulfill, but now God's doing something so unmistakable, glory, unmistakably glorious that you're like, there's no doubt that this is the person whom, whom Isaiah foretold. And more importantly with that is the greater David that he represents, God with us. How amazing it is that God himself condescended. It says in, in the scriptures that he'd emptied himself, but what it means by that is God, God lowered himself by taking on a human nature, by becoming man. He lowered himself from the creator to the creature for our sake. He came to be with us in the midst of darkness. He came to be in the midst of pain and suffering. He came to be in the midst of all of the difficulties of this world because they're great. And the greatest one is our, our, is our need, our need for salvation. Ahaz thought that his greatest need of salvation was to be um, delivered from the threat of Syria in Ephraim against his kingdom. And I was, I was just thinking about that because it's like, man, you almost feel really sad for him to think about because right now it seems like that was a long time ago. What's 734 BC plus about 2022? That's like a long time ago. 
like 2,800 years ago. And you're thinking, man, that happened a long time. You should have thought better about that, Ahaz. Man, you're, you're, you, you've been, you made the wrong choice. In fact, we're still talking about what a dumb choice you made. Like you placed your, you placed your money on the wrong horse, man. But that's the way life is. That's the way that we often think about the short-term, uh, the short-term view of like, what is going on in my circumstances? What am I most afraid of? What is, most, what is the most uh, terrible thing happening to, happening to me? And how can I, through some sort of thing that's going to uh, be less painful for me right now in terms of the way that people see me or whatever, what can I do to relieve the pain right now? We don't have this long view, this 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 long view to trust in what God has done, to, to, to keep looking back at what he's accomplished, what he's doing now, and what he's promised to accomplish. Because Joseph's choice was not going to be an easy one, and he made, the, he made the decision to trust, and it is a grace of God to be able to trust in him. But beloved, I just want to point out to you that today's the day of salvation, and Jesus God with us is worthy of your trust and worthy of your belief this day. He's worthy of, of putting aside the things in which look in front of you as if, as if they're the most obvious in terms of something else that would d- d- detract you from trusting in him or believing in him to get you through the current circumstances. Whatever you need to be, whatever you whatever you need to be saved from, whatever you need to be redeemed from. Because the greatest need that we have as people is salvation from the wrath and curse of God. And everything that we see around us is a, is a reflection of the fact that the creation is groaning in tribulation from those things. And when we recognize that what, what Christ came into was to undo and to redeem a people to himself, to bring light into darkness, then we're able to look at that and look at the, the important event of what that occurred and the important event of what he's doing right now and also look forward to what he's doing so that we're able to say right now, I'm going to continue to trust in Christ even though right now it just seems like the hardest thing to do because there's so many other things around me that would cause me to be distracted and to choose some other means of salvation from my present mourning, my present circumstances, my present um, difficulties I'm having for people who are uh, mocking me or or causing me difficulty for, for whatever it is. And what the scriptures are constantly calling us back to. In one sense, we come back to this in a season, but in another sense, we're also coming back in a season to remind ourselves in this progression of what God is doing. He's, he has done amazing things, and he's doing amazing things for us. And he's, giving us, he's given us signs throughout human history that we might see like, whoa, there's nobody else other than God who can do that. There's nobody else other than God that can do that. And so today, we're actually, we're actually going to be celebrating a sign of God's grace to us. And I was, it caused me to reflect upon the fact that here we are on, the Lord, on, on a Lord's Day in which we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And sacraments are said to be a signs and seals of, of God's grace to us, of Christ's grace to us, where he's poured out to us. He, 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 he 
It's, it, it, it improves our interest in him. It improves everything about us because what Christ says in these things, it says, I've instituted these for you so that you can actually taste and touch and feel that I'm here. And how, how much do we need, um, how, how, how much do we need, especially now, that we would be able to feel like, you know what, Christ is for me. He's resurrected on high, even right now on the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. And the Holy Spirit, through this sacrament, brings us up to him so that we are actually dining with him. And so even now, a sign is before you. You're going to participate in a sign that as, as you believe and the Holy Spirit causes you to believe, it seals to you the grace is signified so that we actually receive nourishment from Christ. We receive interest in him. He continues to indwell us so that we say Christ is with us now. Christ is with us by his spirit even now, and he's going to be dining with us. And so the question for us all today is that Christ's sign is before you. A sign has been given to you. Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Because the signs are not merely for us to look back at some sort of academic thing and say, wasn't that interesting that this happened to to Ahaz? Wasn't that interesting that Joseph believed these things? But do you believe them? Do you believe that a child was given, a virgin conceived, God with us, came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, was resurrected for our justification, ascended on high with power, and is now interceding for us, ruling and reigning the church, protecting us, defeating all of his and our enemies for our benefit, proclaiming the word of God to you that you might believe in his word, and now, even now, present in something as insignificant as gluten-free and all sorts of other like really good for you kind of bread and wine or the fruit of the vine that he's present with us and that we're we're spiritually feeding and drinking grace through Christ and so beloved i just urge you believe because god is worth believing christ is so good and so use this time now, not just, this, not just this, this nice season or whatever it is, use this time now in worship and always to dig into the promises of God, to believe upon him, to look beyond our, our present circumstances, to see what he's done, what he's doing in you now in the anticipation of future glory yet to come. And, and, and in that light, let us come to the table with, with expectation and glory that we're about to receive Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for this opportunity to see in something that happened many, many years ago, over 2,800 years ago, that we would see in this our salvation promised. That it's not merely a prophecy to an obscure king in some small geographical place in the Mediterranean, but it is a story of our people, a story of, a story of grace offered in an unbelief, and yet in the midst of that darkness, you did not grow tired of your people, but continued to 
to prophesy of the Savior who would come, who would be born of a virgin. And we thank you that a son of David later believed that promise and took Mary and, and your son into his home and raised our Savior as his own son. And we thank you that we now have an opportunity to continue to trust and have faith in your Son as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.